Hi, family. Welcome back to another episode of the Black and Empowered podcast. Um, For those who are new listeners, welcome. And for those who are faithful listeners, welcome back. Um, Today, we have another episode. Um, For those who've never heard my voice before, I am Brianna. I am one of the co-hosts of the Black and Empowered podcast. So in today's episode, we have an interview um, with Dr. Metzger. So Dr. Aisha Metzger is one of our co-hosts um, of the podcast. And with this interview, you will hear Dr. Metzger um, answering questions around suicidality in Black teens and youth. You'll also hear her discussing risk factors and barriers that impact access to health care and access to mental health services for Black youth, Black communities overall. Um, And then you also hear her talk about what things we can do. So how can we reduce these barriers and the role that we all can play um, for the clinicians who are listening to the community members who are listening to the organizations that are listening, the things that we could do. Um, So I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. And if you haven't already, definitely subscribe to our podcast so that you're notified when we post new episodes. I hope you guys enjoy. So let's start by having you introduce yourself, say your name and what you do. So hi, Liz. Thanks for the invitation to have this conversation. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Uh, In terms of a personal introduction, my name is Dr. Aisha Metzger. I am a licensed clinical psychologist. I'm currently an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Georgia. Very interestingly, I'm actually in transition right now as we speak to Georgia State University. Same department, psychology. What's interesting about that and relevant, I think, to our conversation is that programmatically, however, I'm switching from a clinical psychology program to a clinical community psychology program. So in terms of what I do, what that means is that the research that I do right now is very translational. So that just means that I take the results of my research findings in terms of Black youth development, Black families, healing from and coping with racism, and I translate that into clinical research for Black youth who are currently engaged in treatment for interpersonal stressors, PTSD, anxiety, and depression, and um, outcomes like that. So in the transition that I'm making in my work, what you'll see is that uh, in recent years, my work has gone from being more clinical, like I said, working with individuals who are currently seeking treatment to being more community-based and more population-based. So some of my background is in clinical community psychology. So that's what my PhD from the University of South Carolina is in. But I also did a postdoc not only at the National Crime Victims Research and Treatment Center, working with Black youth and families clinically, but I did a public health postdoc as well. So you can kind of see the clinical as well as community kind of impact or certainly goals of my work. And the community work that I'm doing right now and the public health work that I'm doing right now is again to take what we know works in Black families in terms of positive youth development after we face racism and really making that now more 
relevant, more impactful, more useful for those of us in the Black community who are not seeking treatment, who are not currently engaged in treatment for a number of reasons that hopefully we'll be able to talk about today in terms of barriers. Um, but my community-based work then is to overcome those barriers that exist and to provide services for underserved, um, high-risk, uh, ethnic minority families, but particularly Black families in our community. Great. So you already started going into this, but I was wondering, I, I know from reading your bio that you wear a lot of hats. So can you just say a little bit about what you do? Like, for instance, you teach, you, I think you, I read you do some consulting. Do you also do like one-on-one -on -one therapy? Right. Yes. So I do wear very many hats. Uh, so currently, in terms of one-on-one -on -one therapy, that's the one thing that you listed that I'm not currently doing. So I am training therapists who currently provide one-on-one -on -one therapy, and I do practicum supervision for therapists in training. Um, but currently, that is the one thing that I'm not doing. Um, I am doing teaching for graduate and undergraduate students. I am doing, again, supervision. Um, I'm also doing consultations. So I, I did start a business around doing consultations with, again, therapists, but also organizations, corporations, community-based practices that want to help Black youth overcome these barriers to accessing services, as well as make their current services more relevant. So I think that those are my main hats right now. So as a licensed clinician, I'm focusing on training and supervision. As a researcher, I'm focused on, again, that treatment and that community-based research. And as an academic, I teach and I uh, also mentor graduate students and undergraduate students um, through their course of graduate study and their training as well. So I wanted to just learn a little bit about you and what got you into this work. So what made you want to become a psychologist and want to focus on underserved and Black American? Um, yeah, huh. <laughs> I really like that question. So what made me want to become a psychologist in the first place? I would say um, I kind of stumbled on that by default. So <laughs> I'm West African. And if you know anything about West African values, traditionally, right, we have three careers that we can go into as first-generation immigrants and certainly um, those of us who grow up with those values. So I was either going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or, a or an engineer, or some sort of scientist. And even today, right, some of my uncles still ask me, why don't you become a real doctor? So I don't know if I fell short on that goal. But what I'll say about um, psychology and, and certainly my work with Black youth my work with traumatized populations is that most of my family came over as a result of a civil war that was taking place in Sierra Leone. So in my early development, I certainly was exposed to a lot of traumatic experiences, both directly as well as uh, vicariously. So just hearing stories from family members back home who were um, still trying to flee from Sierra Leone to America. I'm um, really talking about the Civil War with 
cousins of mine and adopted siblings of mine and really sharing our experiences, but also right going through the education system here and being able to see the differences and outcomes that we were having, even though we went through the same experiences. And then looking at my classmates and my peers, starting to see, right, that those of us who were acting out, those of us who were having what we now think of as negative outcomes, right? Those of us who were having behavioral problems or those of us who were depressed or anxious, whatever they looked like at that time. What I started to see was that, right, we're all the same on the inside. It's based on experiences that we have and that some of us, even though we have the same experiences, are able to cope with and heal from those experiences. So it wasn't until I read um, a book that was called A Child Called It. It was just a, a novel that I read, but I realized later on that it was based on a true story. And it was about this kid who was abused by his mom. And he ended up going through therapy and, and forming a really good relationship with his counselor. And she changed the course of his life. And through um, early classes and really just building my vocabulary, I started to want to, of course, impact and positively help traumatized kids. And then I started to notice, wait, everyone who experiences trauma, even though we do have different outcomes, all of us aren't getting the same access to and we aren't all engaging in these services that I know work. So really just, I would say, personal experiences as well as kind of building my vocabulary in school. So I never missed a day of school just based on my upbringing, the way I was raised. And uh, the more I learned and the more I was able to kind of explore potential career paths, I I would say by the time I went to undergrad, I was a double major, so I still wanted to um, kind of write and use my creative expression, but I certainly knew by then, um, by undergrad, that I was going to go into psychology um, generally as a helping profession, right? Just wanting to help people who had been through traumatic experiences. So I don't usually report on uh, kids and teens and mental health. So I was surprised when I saw that there's been this huge increase in uh, suicide among uh, kids and teens, and especially among Black children and teens. And I'm wondering, just to start with sort of a big picture question, how major is this shift? Would you say that it's a crisis? Yeah, so I'll say that it's a crisis. Um, APA, so the American Psychological Association would certainly say that it's a crisis. Other funding agencies, um, like the National Institute of Mental Health will certainly agree that it's a crisis. Um, so what I will say also, in addition to that, right, is that right now we're at a really unique time in that all of these organizations and agencies and policymakers and people in positions of power are starting to see and recognize that it's a problem as well. So I do think that, yes, it is a growing problem that we all need to address, but that it is, I think, really promising that we're starting to, to see the, the trends in funding opportunity announcements and the emphasis in um, the APA, for example, being focused on Black youth, Black youth suicide prevention, um, even racism, right? So APA just declared racism a pandemic shortly after COVID-19 was declared a pandemic. Um, so I do think, right, that once we're able to identify and label the problem, we're now able to put funding and policies and start to change some of the systems and structures that keep these problems in place. So this next one is a really big question that it's probably not totally fair for me to ask because I don't know if anyone can answer this question. 
But just from your personal experience, just as a person and a psychologist, what do you think is going on, especially with Black children and teens? Why do you think, I, I can't remember exactly when these numbers started rising. I think I read maybe 20, 30 years ago, but what have you seen in your work that you think are factors that are leading more Black kids and teens to turning to suicide? Right. So I think that that question, like you said, is a huge question, right? So why are Black teens and Black youth more likely now to resort to either attempting or completing suicide? Um, And to answer that, right, I think that one of the main questions is what makes anyone attempt suicide? Right. So those are feelings that we know of hopelessness and helplessness and sadness and anger, depression even, right? And a lack of support, a lack of resources, a lack of agency, um, and a lack, again, of hope. So I think that um, when when it comes to what we can do and why that problem exists and what that problem looks like, it comes back to figuring out, right, what components of that problem can we intervene on? And what I'm seeing from Black youth in particular is that the problem is not just these interpersonal stressors. So yes, that is a huge part of the the problem. So we should talk about um, things like experiences with child abuse and neglect. We should talk about, especially now during coronavirus, when kids are at home, right, they're getting their education from their homes. If they are in detrimental or neglectful home environments, they are more likely to lead to these feelings of hopelessness and anger and helplessness and to prevent these coping strategies and these processes and familiar relationships that we know can keep Black youth from engaging in suicide. But in addition, right, to these family relationships and these family problems that are on the rise, what we're also seeing is that Black youth in particular are being inundated with racial stressors. And these racial stressors are ones that we're able to see in their day-to-day lives. They're experiencing them directly. So in interactions that they're having with their peers and interactions that they're having in the community when they go shopping, for example, when they get stopped by the police, if that ever happens, which it does, and it's happening at more alarming rates. But now for those of us who aren't even experiencing those stressors directly, they're also at risk and they are experiencing them at increased rates, drastically increasing rates, uh, these vicarious stressors. So vicarious racial stressors are those that we don't experience directly, but we're able to witness, right? So we're witnessing them in our community. We're pulling out our phones to record them. And when that happens, they're getting posted on social media. And now not only us, but millions of others are now being vicariously traumatized by watching um, things like George Floyd's murder, right? How many times do we see that sometimes without prompting, without warning? And these are stressors that can also lead to, right? These are unpredictable stressors that can also lead to these very same feelings of hopelessness and helplessness and anger, right? And we're seeing national responses to these and individual and community responses to these in the form of protests, in the forms of calling our senators, but right, the teens, they're also logging on to Facebook and social media and having conversations and really arguments, right, with people who are continuing these disparaging messages. And we're having to teach them how to unplug, right, how to disengage from these conversations. But if they don't have those coping strategies, again, 
They're in their houses, they're on their computers, they're experiencing these stressors at every turn. And whereas they, um, for example, have video games to turn to for escape, they're also being accosted by racial stressors in those environments, right? By people microaggressing or overtly conveying racial slurs, for example, that we're seeing. And again, those are being shared on, uh, I think it's called Twitch, right? They're being shared across YouTube. So these stressors are also impacting Black youth. And then, right, so I'm a researcher, <laughs> I'm a clinician. I do know that services exist to help prevent these stressors. But I also can tell you that Black youth are not engaging in these services, they're not accessing these services, they're not benefiting from these services as much as other youth are when they are utilizing them. So really, like you said, it's a huge question, it's a huge problem, but there are multiple solutions. So those are giving coping strategies that work for us to the kids that we have in our families. Those are engaging in services that are available in our community. Those are us as researchers and us as clinicians and organizations making those services more available and accessible. And policymakers, right? So you talked about um, the, the current national attention that's being put on this. So once we identify the problem, are policymakers going to put funding towards suicide prevention, for example? Are lawmakers and judges going to be more cognizant about the, um, the convictions and the sentences that they're giving? Are teachers going to be more cognizant about penalizing kids for being non-compliant? Are they non-compliant and combative or are they responding to microaggressions and systemic racism, for example? So I just talked about, right, a, a bunch of different ways that we are experiencing the problems of, I just call them interpersonal and racial stressors that Black youth experience, but also how we also each individually and organizationally and structurally and systemically have responsibilities and agency over the ways that we're able to help overcome those stressors that are leading to, again, these feelings of hopelessness and helplessness that lead to suicidality as well. So before I ask this next question, I just wanted to ask quickly, uh, you, um, you oversee the Empower Lab, right? I do. Okay. And so how exactly does that work? And are you, um, I know you said you're not doing uh, a lot of one-on-one -on -one therapy, but you're overseeing other therapists. So right. just for my context and answering or asking the next few questions, can you tell me like how involved would you be with those kids or like how much would you, you know, know about their stories? Right. So I guess I can answer that from right so both of my hats so in terms of the consultations and trainings that I do I do those with clinicians who are currently working with black youth so what they do is they come in with their cases and they problem solve their cases they talk about stuck points they talk about issues that they need help with so I do get exposure to the clients in that way and I help to problem solve those issues um, in terms of the work that we do in the Empower Lab, that's how we have more direct contact with youth um, in that the research that I do is with these community-based organizations. So I do talk to the youth and families about barriers that they have to accessing and their experiences with current services, um, as well as the community outreach that I do 
is in providing those tangible coping skills and providing access to the skills that research has an evidence base for. So for example, on the Empower Labs Instagram page, we have a series of Instagram lives where we work through deep breathing and progressive muscle relaxation. We um, did actual skills building and processing um, activities uh, online with youth so that they could practice the skills that we know help them heal from racial stress and trauma. Uh, those are usually lives that we do. So in terms of things that youth can access kind of as they are willing and able, we have what's called a care package for racial healing that provides psychoeducation, that provides resources. And again, these concrete strategies that kids are able to read about, to learn about, and to practice with their caregivers and community members. So there's Instead of me live, there's a cartoon of me. And for example, I'll, I'll teach kids about racial socialization. And I'll um, on the care package, we have prompts that say, identify a Black role model with your caregivers, for example, or work through this activity of what you do if you get pulled over by the police. How would you respond in the moment? How do you calm down? How do you process afterwards? So I do provide those services. And we are, again, the research that we do is to get feedback. So we do focus group with youth. We do surveys with youth to figure out how they are engaging with and how we can make these services and these videos um, and our Instagram content more relevant and more accessible for them. Okay, guys. So now we're going to take a short commercial break. So in this commercial break, I will discuss or kind of explain a little more about the care package that you've heard Dr. Metzger explain and talk about throughout this interview. So the care package first, CARE is an acronym. CARE stands for Cultivating Awareness and Resilience Through Empowerment. And this care package was developed to promote racial healing amongst Black youth. So this care package is a virtual resource that's currently being developed to include various tools and resources to Black teens, Black communities, Black parents. Like this resource is for um, youth, their families, their friends to have conversations around racial identity, racial socialization, um, techniques for relaxation, techniques for regulating our emotions, um, how we can cope through our thoughts, through how we understand what's happening, and then also just different actual action items that we could take for coping. Um, and so this is created in mind for Black youth, Black teens, Black families to have conversations um, and to also understand that we know that Black youth are experiencing racial stressors and how we can better support Black youth with that. Um, so this care package is a virtual resource that's currently being developed and we're super, super excited to finally release it to the world. So you guys stay tuned, but I just wanted to give you guys some information about the care package. If you guys have any more questions or want to know more about the care package, look us up on Instagram at the empower lab. Also on our Twitter is also the empower lab or at the empower lab. Um, and definitely stay tuned because when this website goes out, you guys will be the first to know. So I'm wondering what you've heard from these kids, from their parents or from the therapist you're working with about 
what some of those specific barriers are that prevent especially parents from getting help for their kids, especially if they're suicidal. Like I get the sense that right, it's right. not totally obvious for any parents how to get help. So what are some of the barriers for anybody to get help for their suicidal child? <laughs> and what are some wow. of the more specific barriers that, that you've heard about you in the population? Really enjoyed this interview right, like so what I'll say is that I've done very specific research with black caregivers. Um, so from their perspective, I think that I can give um, can pretty representative answers um, in terms of seeking out and receiving and being able to access uh, like those, said, those services. So barriers that they talk about are typically kind of grouped into one of three types of barrier. So access barriers that they talk about are things like I have a job that's nine to five and your services are only nine to five. You don't have weekend or evening hours. So hours of operation would just be a barrier, right? Or they'll say I have three kids and I only need services for one, but you don't have childcare. So that's a barrier. Even coming in face-to-face -face sometimes can be a barrier. So providing telehealth is a way to overcome that. They also talk about just a lack of available services, right? So if they're saying I'm, I, need, I need more intensive inpatient services, right? Making sure that our organizations have beds available. So those are things that are access level. So making sure that that organization itself is on the bus line or that you offer Medicaid or accept or provide access to the Medicaid van so that your clients are able to utilize those services. Caregivers are also talking about their prior experiences with services as being um, ones that are preventing them from engaging in future services. So really talking to them when they come in write about your, your responsibilities as a mandated reporter. So they talk about not really trusting people within the system, not really trusting mental health professionals. So there are things that we can do to overcome those barriers, like talking about limits of confidentiality, um, talking about privacy issues, making sure that we are doing consultations and continuing educations and training around cultural sensitivity and talking with Black caregivers, not blaming them, right, for spanking their kids, for example, but really talking to them about their values and meeting them where they're at. And again, they also talk about those explicit provider barriers. So some caregivers will say, my provider didn't know how to talk to me as a, as a Black family or as a Black caregiver, right? So making sure that we are able to overcome those barriers by making them aware of the services that exist and also identifying ourselves as people within the system, yes, but those who were there to help them. So calling ourselves allies and advocates. And then when you talk to Black youth, right, their reasons are going to be completely different. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, um, get mental health care because I don't know who this person is. I don't trust I don't trust adults in general. I don't have time for this, right? So when you, when we as caregivers, when we as members of our community hear those barriers, what I say is we should identify and listen to those and really make it a point to help them overcome them. So yes, old people don't get it. You don't trust most people within the system, but I'm here to let you know that I'm one of the ops. 
right? So I'm working on your side. I'm an advocate or I'm an ally. Caregivers can say, I know you don't like talking to me about these sensitive issues, but I want to give you someone who you can talk to and know that you have privacy and know that they will not tell me anything that we talk about, right? So using whatever uh, reasons your kids say for not wanting to go to therapy, oh, I don't want to sit in the office with nobody. Oh, well, here you go. You can log into Talkspace and we can get you some telehealth services. Or here you go. We're going to look up therapy for Black girls because you said you don't want to talk to no old white lady. And we're going to find you a therapist within your demographics that you're comfortable with. So there are, right, I just rambled for a long time and listed a ton of barriers that caregivers and youth will say. But my response to that is once we identify the barriers, that's the good thing, right? So now we know, all right, I need to offer telehealth. Okay, I need to offer inpatient options. I need to offer bus passes, right? So how can I make sure that the services that are necessary are available? I just want to pick up on something you mentioned just now, which is um, you've heard caregivers say that their doctors don't know how to talk to them. I'm wondering if you can think of any examples of what that might look like. Like, is it is it specific things that doctors say? Is it things they don't say? Is it you know sort of the mm. manner they they talk with right. parents and caregivers? Like, what do you? What, uh, right. So I think the two main things are one, not being comfortable enough addressing the elephant in the room, and two, not taking a parent's culture and backgrounds into consideration, and somehow that being conveyed as, you know, parents feeling like they're being told that they're bad parents. So we can talk about each of those. And I think that each of those are important and relevant to address. So the parents not wanting to feel like they're being told that they're bad parents, for example, if a caregiver says that they spank their kid, right? Oftentimes what we as clinicians do is we tell caregivers the many, many reasons why we shouldn't be spanking our kids and why that's bad. What they're going to say is, well, you obviously know nothing about me and my family. So what's better to do is to ask caregivers about why they spank their kids. What's better to do is for us as clinicians to get education around why some African-American caregivers might spank their kids, to learn about the history of slavery, the history of uh, civil rights, the history of police brutality, the history that will lead Black parents to feel like they need to parent their kids more sternly because they know that if they're non-compliant or combative or don't respond to requests in society, that they can get beaten, that they can get shot by police, that they can get written up in school. So caregivers now are parenting their kids in a way for survival, right? So that's a way that clinicians can say the wrong thing or not necessarily ask about the values of a family that can lead them to think that, okay, you don't know how to talk to me or you don't know about my specific cultures. The other thing that I mentioned is that some clinicians, right, they do all the education, they check their implicit biases, they learn more about Black families, but then they go into the, their sessions and they're not having the conversations. And Black families pick up on that, right? So what they're going to say is, I'd rather you just call out the elephant in the room, ask me how I'm perceiving you as a white therapist, ask me about my experiences within the system with other therapists, right? Ask me about what concerns I have about treatment so that we can address them. But if you treat it like it's an elephant in the room, you being clinicians, right? If a clinician is treating it like it's an elephant in the room and it being race, 
if we're unwilling to talk about race, racism, family values, and culture, then our families are going to feel like, okay, you're only treating a very small percentage of my issues. You're not addressing my full issues. You're not really seeing me as a whole and complete identity because when you ask a lot of these families, first and foremost, I'm Black, right? So if you're not addressing that issue and talking to me about that, then I don't think that we're addressing the whole issue here. Um, and that, what I'll, what I'll say um, on behalf of myself as someone who seeks mental health care, but certainly on behalf of the caregivers and the youth who I've engaged in with clinical services and research, is that if you're not addressing a large part of my identity, you're not going to adequately be able to address the issues that I'm experiencing. That's really interesting. One of the things that made me think is like, you know, like you said, I've been hearing that a lot of therapists and counselors have been trying to get these trainings about, you know, learning about racism, addressing their implicit biases, but we're talking about, you know, a lifetime of programming that people have to sort of rethink. Like, do you think, do you think it's possible for a white therapist to really get there enough to help uh, kids and their families? And if not, then how big of a problem is it that there um, aren't enough Black therapists to go around? Um, well, I don't think that's necessarily a yes or no question. So what I'll say first and foremost is, of course, we need more Black and Brown therapists, right? We do know that therapists and client matching helps. But also what I'll say is, if you use the statement that you just gave me with any client, they would engage in treatment. So that statement being, I'm a therapist and I've been doing continuing education and I've been doing consultations and training to try to uh, check my implicit biases and be uh, practice cultural humility as a clinician. I see myself as an ally or an advocate, but I do recognize, right, that this is a huge systemic problem that I cannot solve on my own. And certainly that this very limited education that I have uh, won't be able to tackle completely. But What I do know is that I want to work with you and learn more about your experiences and learn more about your perspectives and perceptions and validate those and really come up with a plan together that we know will help tackle those, I'm going to say in this case, racial stressors that you're experiencing. But we can also say interpersonal and racial stressors, right? So any stressors that you're experiencing, we're going to work on those together. So that's to say that I might make some mistakes right? So I'm an expert in cognitive behavioral therapy, but I'm an adult. So I might say some things to you that let you know that I don't really get what it's like to be a teenager. Or you might say something to me like the first time I heard the word thought, I had to say, whoa, 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 I'm sorry. I know you're telling an important story and you're really worked up, but what's a thought? And you have to ask and get the explanation, right? Uh, We do that very same thing as clinicians. And we say, if I say something that confuses you or offends you, or if you say something that confuses me, I want us to be able to talk about that, to ask questions, to say if you're offended. I certainly want you to know that my my intentions, however, are to help you and to really get to know you and your experiences. So if we're able to, like I said, address that as clinicians and say, you know what, I'm trying and I'm working on this and I'm learning and I want us to work together, right? 
a black client knows about their experiences. It's not for them to educate you, but it is for them to share with you so that you're able to use your skills and your expertise and your evidence base and these cognitive behavioral strategies to help them apply. So we use, for example, cognitive restructuring in response to an interpersonal stressor. But we can also use cognitive restructuring in response to a racial stressor, not to restructure what their experience is. So not to say maybe that wasn't a microaggression, but to restructure our response. So yes, it was a microaggression. Your initial reaction might be to fight or to flight or to freeze. But in this case, because you're prepared, your reaction to a microaggression is to ask a question. What did you mean by that? So now you don't internalize it and feel helpless like you didn't know how to respond, but now you put it back on the responsibility of the person who gave you that message in the first place to tell you what they meant when they said, oh, you're so pretty for a dark-skinned girl, or you're so well-spoken for a Black person, or how'd you get into this honors class, right? These very many racial stressors that we experience, the more we're able to work with kids to figure out what they are that they experience but then to give strategies to help them overcome them, the more we're able to connect with them and to get rid of that hopelessness, that helplessness, that anger, that aggression, um, and, and the behavioral outcomes, right? Like suicidality that result from these experiences as well. So we've been hearing all about how the past year or year and a half has been hard on everybody's mental health, but especially kids and teens. And I'm wondering, um, I don't know if your services have been, you know, open or to what degree you've been able to engage with kids mm -hmm. over this time, but have you seen evidence of that distress in the kids that um, you and your therapist work with? And what are some of the things that you're hearing about these kids about like what is what is stressing them out? What is making them depressed, especially over the past year? Yeah, I would say that, right, this past year. So that's, that was marked by, I want to kind of try to go chronologically, right? But at least it started with um, Armand Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. And we saw kind of the uprising of our community's reactions to the social injustices, to really seeing the systemic and structural problems that we were having in our community. Um, and I think that Black teens and Black youth, particularly those who had internet access, who were all in the house because of this pandemic, were exposed to those stressors um, at really alarming rates, right? So even I, as a, as a researcher, I do see that, the, that these instances come up periodically. So there was, um, the shooting of the Emanuel Nine in Charleston by Dylan Roof, right? That kind of spurred some in 2017. But I think that periodically and particularly around times of elections and political change, we start to see this, this greater media attention to racial stressors um, and to social injustices. And certainly I would say that that would be the, the greatest marker for me of our past year was this kind of vicarious, but also direct community-based and collective trauma that we were experiencing as Black people. And certainly I would say that Black youth were not immune to that at all. So they were participating in the protests. They were, I talked to one in particular, so I, I do. So what I'll say is that I, I don't currently offer paid or um, 
clinical services that have a fee, but I do a ton of stuff for free. <laughs> uh, so I have passion, pur purpose, power sessions that I have every Monday, and those were greatly attended by youth in the community. Um, and there's one in particular who I remember was just so angry um, after John Lewis's death and really just feeling hopeless about kind of the state of our nation and where we were moving. And through kind of just talking about the civil rights movement and talking about how much change has been made historically, talking about laws that were passed in the kind of first 90 days following Breonna Taylor's death while we were still waiting on the district attorney to press charges, right? I was able to empower this youth and he really empowered himself through thinking about how, um, in this case, he built a bot on, um, on an app, I don't even know what it was, but he was telling me about this bot that he built to um, spam a radio station and win tickets to something, right? And by the end of our conversation, this student or this uh, member of the community, this uh, team used this bot to spam the district attorney's office to demand that they arrest the killers of Breonna Taylor, right? So just thinking about ways that we as adults can really motivate and inspire and empower our youth to talk about their current stressors, yes but also talk about their current strengths and how they can use those and how we can work together to help them kind of brainstorm and mobilize um, and use those towards making the change that they want to see. So oftentimes when you talk to kids who are suicidal, when you talk to adults who are suicidal, they feel like there's no hope. They feel like all hope is lost and that there's nothing that they can do to regain control or to enact positive change in their lives. So in the case of empowerment and of community activism and certainly of responding to racial stressors and interpersonal stressors, a lot of times just giving skills and just giving that sense of control and of autonomy and empowering right, our youth to utilize their current position and their current strengths and their current passions to really benefit society and to benefit their environments and to benefit their lives is what gives them, in my opinion, kind of a new lease on life and a new desire and goal to work towards as opposed to right feeling hopeless and helpless. And before suicidality, right, that that looks like anger and aggression and it looks like substance use or substance misuse and it looks like risky sex and deviant peer groups. So when we see these things in our youth, Certainly what my research shows, what my pers personal experience shows and my clinical work shows is that if we can just find a value, find a cause, find a purpose um, and really empower youth to work towards that, oftentimes we're able to overcome a lot of kind of these internalizing problems that they're having. Okay, and I have just a couple more if that's okay. So you were just talking about uh, some of the things that might come before a teen being suicidal or being signals of them becoming suicidal. Mm -hmm. It made me think of, um, you know, these studies showing that, you know, like if you have a black patient and a white patient, doctors will be more skeptical of the black patient's pain and they, you know, won't take their complaints as seriously or they won't give them pain medication. I'm wondering, have you heard anything about whether um, something similar happens with Black kids and teens being suicidal where um, either the signs aren't recognized or they're not taken as seriously as they should be? Yeah, so I think in the case of Black youth, what happens is that the signs are recognized, but they're penalized instead of being helped for them. 
right? So the signs look like that, that kid in school who was arguing with his teacher. What happens with that kid, that Black kid especially, is that he gets written up, he gets suspended, he gets expelled, and that's what leads to kind of that cycle that leads to um, deviancy that can lead to hopelessness, helplessness, right? We can continue down that line. Um, so I think that certainly is recognized, but it, 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 what that means then is that it's our responsibility as professionals to take that recognition and not criminalize it, not pathologize it, not make it something that makes it the responsibility of the youth, but that lets us see and think about ways that we can help them overcome um, those problems that they're experiencing. Um, so I would say that, that that's a little bit different than what we see happening in, in medicine. So I think that certainly medically, um, there are some cases where, for example, in research has been shown that doctors physically think that Black people have thicker skin, right? That we have higher pain tolerance, that we have um, physical or biological differences that can lead to some of what you're talking about in terms of our problems not being picked up on or attended to appropriately. In terms of behavioral outcomes of Black youth and certainly mental health care as it pertains to suicidality, what I'll say is that we, we often see those Black youth who are suicidal, um, but we don't see them as suicidal. We see them as deviant. We see them as angry. We see them as, right, um, fill in the blank in, in how we pathologize and label them. And I think that as, as early as we're able to catch them and change them from those courses um, of actions, of thoughts, of feelings, then we're able to prevent and intervene upon suicidality. And I think this might be my last question. Um, as I was doing my research, I came across is a study or maybe a you know an opinion article about how there's been this stereotype that suicide is a white thing or that mental health care, you know, therapy is a white thing. Um, this was from years ago though. So I'm wondering, do you think that attitude is still, uh, well, do you think that attitude ever, ever was, um, you know, sort of the main attitude among black communities? And if so, do you think that's still a big, a big, yeah, so absolutely. I would say that um, historically, right, Black people will certainly say that therapy is a white thing, and that's because it was designed as a white thing, right? It was established for white people. Therapies were tested on white people. Manuals were validated on white people. So certainly, I would say that that um, perception and experience is likely true. Um, I'll also add to that that Black people historically also had um, their own set of um, kind of circumstances and experiences that made that statement true, right? So historically, Black people might be more likely to rely on spirituality and religion than mental health care, for example. We do know that historically, Black people are more likely to rely on their own family and their own extended families other than um, outside members of the family. So that thing, what happens in the family stays in the family, right? Um, so I do think that all of those um, are true in that um, historically, 
as well as uh, the values that Black families have, there was a tendency in the past, um, and certainly if it currently exists, our job is to help overcome those barriers. Um, so those are to do things like I've said, as white clinicians, if you get a black person in to say, right, I'm white, I know that historically this exists, but I want to say that I want to make this therapy relevant for you. So calling it out and, and um, then addressing it, I think is what's really important. Um, that also means, right, that if therapy is seen as being for white people, we need to get it out in the community and to public health, because in addition to access, you got to be aware of these services. So as we're advertising our services, we have to make them known that, listen, Black people are welcome or even specifically wanted here, right? So things like therapy for Black girls and different resources that allow Black families, um, that allow BIPOC families, so their websites like cliniciansofcolor.org, their resources and listservs, um, healingincolor.com, that allow families to um, not only access these services, but also being aware of services that exist. So yes, um, I will say that I think that it's true that historically therapy has been for white people. I think that perception is true. Um, and I think that that experience has been true. Uh, but with that said, I do think that we're at a really good place and that we are doing a lot of great work. Um, so many of my colleagues and peers and people who I look up to and people who've come before me and certainly those who I'm training now and those in our community now are doing that work to overcome. One, the perception that therapy is only for white people and certainly the experience of black people and BIPOC people who are engaged in therapy. Great, I think that's everything I have. Um, was there anything you wanted to add about suicide among black kids and teens in general, about you know factors leading to it, about solutions that we didn't cover? Um, really what I, uh, what I always try to end with is just <laughs> kind of a call to action that says, if we have identified this problem, then Honestly, I think that we all have a personal responsibility to help overcome it. And I think that we all have personal strengths and resources that can allow us to help working towards overcoming it. So if we know that suicidality is increasing among Black youth, and we know that a major problem of that and a major reason for that is both interpersonal, but particularly these racial stressors, so racism, discrimination, and systemic injustices towards BIPOC people and particularly Black people. Our job then is to figure out how we can use our current identity, our current position, our current resources, our current strengths, our current passions to help dismantle those structures that are in place that uphold systemic racism and these racial stressors, but also to help heal from and overcome those experiences that are ongoing. Wow, what a great interview. I hope you guys really enjoyed this interview just like I did. I hope that you guys learned a lot about where we are and understanding the experiences of Black youth and also what we can do to help Black youth, their families, and the Black community in general. Um, like I said in the introduction to this episode, if you guys 
are new i hope you guys come back and i hope this episode was everything that you guys were looking for um remember to follow us on instagram at the empower lab and follow us on twitter at the empower lab as well we are always posting new content we're always posting great things to hear about to read about um and just great resources to have like i said i hope you guys really enjoyed this episode and stay tuned for our next episode see you guys soon